Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer from the Chicago Cubs, and you're listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast featuring everybody's favorite coach, Coach Manaman. Follow him on Twitter at Coach Manaman. This podcast is produced on Anchor, where you can record, edit, and publish all from your smartphone. You can find the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platforms. Stepping to the batter's box. Welcome back to episode 54 of the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast, and we have a fan favorite with us today. You see him at almost every single sporting event around the Dubuque area. We are joined today by the sports editor for the Telegraph Herald and the 2019 inductee into the Dubuque County Hall of Fame, Jim Leitner. Jim, welcome for your first appearance on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Jim, you have been doing such a great job with the Telegraph Herald for many years. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and I'm curious, are you a Dubuquer? Yeah, I uh, grew up in the, uh, the north end out in the, uh, the Point area. Uh, so the, a lot of great, uh, great baseball tradition out in that point area. I grew up probably two or three blocks away from Kevin Romberg um, out in that area. And uh, just a lot of really good baseball, a lot of fun times growing up in that area. And uh, baseball has been a big, uh, big part of my life and being in a Dubuqueer. When I told people that I was interviewing you, a lot of people had commented to me on on how great of a baseball player you were growing up. Even my mom mentioned that uh, her name was Kathy Like, was her maiden name, but you had played with with many of the likes, and was your dad a coach in the Holy Name League? He was, yeah. He he actually made the Hall of Fame as well. He went in about uh, 1998 or so. Uh, but uh, the the Holy Name League was a pretty a pretty cool deal. It was uh, basically for guys who were under the age of twenty, and they basically you were affiliated with your church. So it was basically all the churches around Dubuque and Dyersville had a team, and East Dubuque had a team. So all these guys who were under the age of twenty uh, played for their parishes, and it was really a competitive baseball. Um, great baseball and a lot of guys really enjoyed it. I think that's when, you know, it didn't really conflict with the high school season quite as much. Uh, it kind of went away when the high school season went deep into July and in early August. So, uh, the Holy Namely kind of, kind of disappeared, but my dad was in part of that, the Holy Trinity team for, uh, probably 25 years. And, uh, he, uh, Every year he had a deal where he, he did all these kinds of fundraising efforts. And what he would do is like each November, he would have a player from the Cubs or from the White Sox come into the church basement and they'd have like a Las Vegas night type deal to raise money. And, and they raised a ton of money. Uh, so all the kids from Trinity, they never had to pay a dime to play baseball. 
they got new uniforms all the time. They had top of the line equipment and, um, and he just, he did a great job supporting the Holy Trinity program, but he also had a lot of connections around the area. So he'd help guys like get to tryouts and stuff like that. So he was a, a pretty, uh, pretty influential guy when it came to, to baseball and just, just loved the game and was so dedicated to, you know, helping young people advance in baseball. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a shame that the Holy name league isn't around. And I think it's kind of a forgotten, kind of a forgotten league, but, uh, there are a lot of people still to this day. I have a lot of people who come up to me and tell me about the great times that they had playing in the Holy name league and, um, the influence that my dad had on them. So it was a, a pretty cool, a pretty cool league. And like I said, it's kind of a shame that it's not around anymore. Yeah, the first that was brought to my radar was when I had Dick Core, Ed Fayan, and Jerry Rowling on, and Ed Fayan had mentioned the Holy Name League. And then when I was talking to my mom, she said that your dad had coached many of her brothers in the Holy Name League, so it was cool to see it made its its full cycle here yeah. with me, and, and we're getting the word out to others as well. Now, you... Think about your playing ranks when you were growing up. Did you play in the pen, in, in the independent league? If so, who did you play for all the way on up through high school? And who were yeah. some of the top players that you played with or played against growing up? Um, let's see. We played uh, we played independent league. It was much a different structure then. Um, it was kind of more like a uh, a feeder for the Holy Name League. So, like, you were more affiliated with your your church parish. Uh, so I played for Holy Trinity. We were the twins. So I played for them growing all the way up. And I don't know that we had – we didn't have, like, D-League. And uh, you didn't start when you were in kindergarten or first grade like they do now. I think we only had – I think we only had A and B. So you'd only play seventh and eighth grade and then – fifth and sixth I think that's kind of when you started but we played a lot of uh leisure service baseball back then so they they had a really robust leisure services program uh, when I was growing up so we'd go out to Riverside out by uh out by where Sutton Pool is now and uh, out by Eagle Point Park and we play baseball in the morning there play a lot of Sandlot uh Marshall School and Trinity Field when we were growing up and and then uh, a, lot of, a lot of good times playing on the sandlot and playing uh, leisure services ball and then playing independent league. And then I was fortunate enough to play four years out up at Hempstead and um, had the distinction of being on the first Hempstead team that made it to the state tournament and lost. So that was kind of a, kind of a little bit of a, Bummer, but yeah, the, the first four teams from Hempstead that went to state all won the state championship, and we went and we got beat in the first round, so that was uh, something I'm sure Coach Core is not too uh, fondly looking back at. And, and then I played two years at Loris, um, played there two years, and uh, I started working at the Telegraph Herald when I was uh, at the end of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year, and uh, I started my first two years at Loris. Um, but I, I really did like playing spring baseball. It was, wasn't a lot of fun. And uh, I actually started working at Telegraph Herald, and I realized that there were a lot more opportunities there. And there were, uh, I think it was going to be better for my career to, to, 
commit more time to working at the paper because I'd get more opportunities and it'd be better for my long-term career. So that's why I kind of stopped playing baseball. You know, I, I started, the knees started to go a little bit too. And just, you know, I thought it was the right time. And, you know, as much as I missed playing baseball, the opportunity to write about baseball and work for the paper uh, kind of filled that void that, you know, a lot of people, when they have to give up the game, they, they have to give it up cold turkey. But this way I was still able to, to be involved in the game and be around a lot of great people. I, I feel your pain with that, with being able to be around the game but not play. After I got out of, of coaching, I wanted to find a way to still be around the local coaches and the area players, and that's how I came up with the idea to start the podcast. I will let you know what Coach Core says about this episode because every every Hempstead episode he listens to and then he emails me his review on the episode and so far he's given us all positive reviews which is good now how yeah. long have you been with the TH Jim I started when I was uh, like I said I was in in college so it was like 1988 okay. and then I grad- graduated from Loris and I took a full-time job down in Burlington but I was only there for about half a year and then I came back. So it's been about 32 years that I've been involved at the paper and almost almost all of that has been in sports. I did a little bit in news uh, for a summer or two, but uh, other than that, it's been in sports all uh, all 32 years. That's awesome. So, Good for yeah, you. And hard to believe that it's been that long, but... Uh, yeah, when you add it all up, it's been 32 years. Yeah, and looking at your pitchers from over the years, you really haven't aged too much. You still look the same <laughs> from when you were interviewing me in, in 99 and, and 2000. Yeah, yeah I, my hair is a little bit grayer. And, uh, but, you know, I think when you, when you do something that you enjoy, uh, it keeps you young. They say if you enjoy what you do, you, you never have to go to work. Now, in 2019, you were inducted into the Dubuque County Hall of Fame. What was the feeling like when you got the news that you were going to be honored? Uh, I would say shock, to be honest. Uh, it was one of those things that I never really thought about. Um, like I said, it's this has been a a really good opportunity to go out and, and have fun, follow the game. And uh, I enjoy going to games. I enjoy sitting in the press box, just BSing with uh, the public address guy or, you know, just general fans. And I never really, I never really thought I was making any kind of impact or anything like that. And, you know, when you, when you look at, you look at some of the names that are in the hall of fame, it's really humbling to, to know that you're part of that class and, you know, I've been writing about all these guys for 30 years and, you know, I know their reputations. I know how good they were. And even the contributors, I knew how much effort they put in, how much blood, sweat and tears they put into holding a tournament and, you know, all the disappointment they would have with, you know, getting rained out and just the amount of, just the amount of work that goes into to baseball and to be considered part of that class and to see my name along with a lot of the people who are in there, it's, it's very humbling and it's, you know, something I, I appreciate greatly, but it's, again, it's sometimes it's hard to believe that you're part of uh, 
a list of so many great people who have contributed so much to baseball in Dubuque County. Yeah, that was was a huge honor, and that probably made it even more special getting it from left field, not knowing that that was going to come. Now, I can tell they have a huge mutual respect for you because when we were doing our team um, season previews, every single one of them mentioned you for keeping Semi-Pro alive by doing the box scores and getting the tournament information out, and they had record crowds this year. When you think back to all your years of covering Semi-Pro, what are some of the stories, who are some of the teams, and who are some of the players that over the years really stand out? Well, I, you know, I go back, uh, one of the real cool moments was uh, Mitch Williams pitched in the Worthington tournament about 1999, and um, it was kind of really cool. They had a sellout crowd and everything. It was unbelievable. Um that was one of the probably the, the cool moments. You know, anytime you go to a, a championship game of one of these tournaments, it's it's so much fun. There's so much high intensity. Um, I'd hate to leave out any names because there's so many great players who were great high school players in Dubuque, great college players around the area, and they've come back and they've played for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, which is – it makes it a lot of fun. And, you know, I just look at how – you know, a lot of these small towns in Dubuque County really embrace the game, really embrace semi-pro baseball and and just enjoy it. It's just, it's a, it's a really unique environment and it's a, it's a lot of fun. So um, <laughs> it's kind of humbling again that, that the, uh, the people involved with semi-pro give me credit like that. I, I, again, I think I don't see myself that way as being that influential or making that big of a deal. And it, it means a lot to me that they, they recognize that and that they they think I am making a difference because, like I said, I'm just trying to do something that I really enjoy, and if, if it benefits semi-pro baseball, all the better. That Mitch Williams game was the first ever semi-pro that game that I went to, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the teams and you <laughs> mentioned the players. You look at some of the top high school preps in the area, a lot of those kids – have been playing semi-pro since they've been in 7th or 8th grade. I mean, there's stories of Calvin Harris and Ian Moeller playing for Farley and, Pia- and I'm sorry, Key West at, at younger yep. ages, and then Cole Smith, who had a remarkable year at senior, has been playing for Key West off and on since he's been in 8th grade. And then you see playing with that top competition when they get to the, the high school level how much it benefits them. Now, uh, Tyler Sogling recently came back from Arizona and found himself on the mound shortly after. And him and I have talked a lot about semi-pro. He was actually the one to push me to do some semi-pro episodes. And he has played semi-pro baseball all over the country in Minnesota. He played a little bit in the Wisconsin area, and now he's in the Arizona area. And he said nothing compares to Dubuque County and semi-pro baseball. Now, why do you think this area is so special when it comes to semi-pro baseball? Well, I think here, I think we kind of take it for granted um, because it's been such a such a part of our fabric of our county for so many years. But it's, it's when you talk to guys like Tyler, um, I talked to Tom Wegman, who pitched in the for the Orioles and Mets many years ago, and his boys played 
back here this summer. When, when you talk to people who have who have been here and then they moved away, uh, they give you really an appreciation for how special it is and how unique it is. But I think the big part of it is, is you know, I, I don't know Tyler's experience playing where he's been at, but I highly doubt that you're ever going to find a, an area where you have communities like Holy Cross or Rickardsville or Balltown or Zwingle, who are just real tiny little communities, real town, tiny small towns where the players are so competitive and they're so, uh, they're so driven to represent their small communities. Um, I would have to imagine like where Tyler's playing in, in Arizona, it's probably in a bigger metropolitan area. You go and, you know, the best guys go and they try out and they, they draw teams. Uh, but here it's like if you're from Rickardsville, you want to represent Rickardsville or Holy Cross or Zwingle or Balltown. And, you know, those guys, like I said, they're so competitive and they want to represent their their small communities really well. And uh, I think that's why it's it's so strong. I, I would have to imagine this is something that's been going around the country for years and years and years, decades uh, but I think Dubuque is really special in the fact that all these smaller communities have uh, have stayed at it and really continued those traditions and and passed them down from you know generation to generation and uh, you know just that passion for the game. It's great that you mentioned uh, Tom Wegman because it's a great transition into my next question. I just a couple days ago wrapped up an interview with Connor Klosterman, which will air after yours in the upcoming weeks. And he mentioned that uh, Tom's sons came back to play for Dyersville, and they were from New York City, and they spent the summer in the area coming back to play baseball. Now, Jim, I have to tell you that when I was prepping for you and I was prepping for Connor Klosterman, I did a lot of research on Beckman, and there's one news story that really stood out to me and you were in the background and it was um, not even your story but one of my favorite pictures or scenes with you is it was the first game that Beckman was playing without Tom Jing Jr. as their coach and he was sitting outside of the fence right outside the third base coach's box and they zoomed in on him for the um, story and you two were talking back and forth and you both had huge smiles on your face you could tell the love and the admiration that you two had back and forth for each other now what is one thing that all of those Hall of Fame coaches in the area had. We recently had Jerry Rowling, Ed Fan, and Dick Core on as guests. What made those coaches and Tom Jink Jr. so successful at what they did? You know, I think you look at all those guys, they were they were coaches for for decades, for years and years. I, I just think they were all able to connect with young people and connect with different generations of young people, which is a really a difficult thing. I mean, you like Tom Jank, he, and I think all those guys have coached not only a first generation, but they've coached their sons and in some cases, maybe even their grandsons. Um, but they all have that, that ability to connect with young people. And I, I think that's such a, a tremendous attribute 
you know, you look at those coaches, you know, first of all, they've, they've had really good talent. You know, they, they're, they've, they coached in communities where baseball is important. Uh, all those coaches are extremely good at the fundamentals, you know, working on the first and third steal situations until, you know, until you get too tired to do it anymore <laughs> and make sure that you get it. It's true. I mean, you know, in high school, we worked on first and third situations all the time. Probably worked on that more than anything else, I think, with Coach Gore. And you always wonder, geez, why are we doing spending so much time on this? Why are we spending so much time on it? And then you'd get to an important part in the game and, you know, you'd run the play and you'd, you'd do it flawlessly and, you know, you'd get a key out defensively that would help you win a game and you know those are all guys who worked so hard at the fundamentals and you know really put their athletes in a position where they could succeed because they were so so committed to to uh the fundamentals and you know also you look at those guys and the element that we don't look at in this in this context is they're all really good teachers they're all really good in the classroom you know, you look at Dick Core and Ed Fan and, and Tom Jank and, and Jerry Rowling, you know, we look at them as baseball coaches and the community looks at them as baseball coaches. And, but I think I think all of them would say that they're probably more proud of what they do in the classroom and how they can connect with with students, with young high school age students in the classroom. And if you can do that, uh, I think that the success carries over the baseball diamond as well. And, and I think that's a big reason why all those guys were so successful. I, I feel like we're getting away from those generational coaches where you taught and coached the kid and then you had their dad and then you had their grandfather as well. And it just seems, my friends and I were talking about this the other day, it seemed like there were never varsity jobs open. You would hire the top candidate at a young age and they would coach in that position for 20, 30, 40 some years where it seems like now there's constantly varsity jobs at all sports um, that are open. Now, I do want to ask you a question about Coach Core because Coach Core has sent me some emails and he put in a request that made me feel um, uncomfortable. I, I still call him Coach Core and it is a respect thing. My family calls him Coach Core. He is always Coach Core, but he always sends me in his emails and he said, Nick, please call me Dick. Stop calling me Coach Core. Do you call him Coach Core still or do you call him Dick when you see him? I, I call him coach too. I, you know, it's kind of one of those things. I don't know that that's a hard habit to break. Um, but uh, he actually, it was interesting. It was, it was kind of a challenge. One of the first times when I was working for the TH um, and I covered one of his games, one of, one of the Hempstead games. And uh, it was a game that Hempstead lost. It was a tough loss for Hempstead. And he, uh, you know, we were chatting after the game and, you know, he was, you know, chatting about me being a Mustang and everything. And then, you know, he kind of stopped himself and he said, you know what, you have a job to do, you know, and I trust that you're going to, you're going to do your job to the best of your ability. And, you know, you do what, you know, what you have to do for your job and, and, you know, tell the story the way, uh, the way you have to, you know, you're not a, you know, you're not necessarily, you're not a Mustang here. You're, you know, you have a job to do. You have to, a story to tell. 
and make sure you do it the best that you can. And um, that was a, a really a neat moment for me, you know, because, you know, as a, as a player who went through his program, it, it can be a little bit awkward, you know, because you want to, you want to make him proud and everything. But, but when he said that, you know, that was really a, you know, a really neat moment that he was, he told me to do my job the best way I could. And, you know, when you look back at it, that's kind of what you expect from coach core. And, you know, he, he demands that you do your best. And, you know, that was, uh, like I said, that was a pretty neat moment when he, uh, when he said that. And I'm going to continue coach core. If you're listening to this, I'm going to continue to call you coach core back to what you were saying about practice. I mean, when I played for him in 99, we would practice things that you may never see, but if it happened, we were always prepared for it. And if we ran it either defensively or offensively, we uh, always ran it well. Now, you shared a behind-the-scenes story of Coach Core. Any behind-the-scenes stories from Coach Jink, Coach Rowling, or Coach Fan that are either humorous or interesting stories before we move on? Um, you know, I think one of the cool things that I, like I said earlier, I, you know, you always look at these guys as baseball coaches and, uh, coach fan actually, when he was rep winding up his, his, uh, teaching career, he teached over at senior and he taught my daughter math. <laughs> and so, you know, I, uh, I, I always looked at him as a baseball coach and, uh, you know, as a, you know, a guy, a real fundamental guy and coach, um, but what was neat was going to parent teacher conferences and talking to him. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about baseball at first, but then, you know, we got to the subject of my daughter's performance in class and, it, you know, you could tell that he really cared about her performance in the classroom. Uh, she, you know, she was not a, any kind of an issue. She had great, great grades and she did really well in the classroom, but you could tell by the way that he talked that, you know, that the students could connect with him. And, you know, that's a side of Coach Fan that I'd never seen before because I didn't have him in the classroom. I didn't really uh, know about him in the classroom. But it's, you know, it's it's interesting to see that other side of a, a coach uh, that, that, that they're really good in the classroom. And my daughter always raved about how good he was at explaining things and, you know, how math seemed to come a lot easier when, with him as a teacher um, because her previous math teacher wasn't quite as good at explaining math. So it, it was really neat to see that connection. Um, I think as far as like Coach Coach Jank, um, I don't know if you, you'll ever see a coach who was more positive with his athletes Um you know, you're talking about baseball as a sport where you fail almost all the time. And, uh, you know, even if you're really good, you still fail seven times out of 10. And, uh, but he was a guy who just was so positive and he got so much, that positive energy was a reason why I think he won a couple more state championships at the end. And I remember, I think it was one of the last state championships that he won there was a player on his team. I think he batted ninth in the order. The whole tournament series, you know, districts, sub-state, state. So you're probably talking about six or seven games in that series. Didn't have a hit. The entire the entire tournament series, he didn't have a hit. And he came up in 
pivotal situation in the state championship game. And, you know, you look down at the third base coach at Fox and coach Jank was treating this kid like he was a first team all stater. Uh, you know, he's a 400 hitter, you know, you know, tell him you're going to get it done. And sure enough, the kid got a base hit that won the state tournament. And, you know, there's a lot of guys who maybe would have pinch hit for him in that situation uh, because he hadn't had a success because he'd been struggling. But uh, Coach Schenk was a guy who, who stuck with you. And he, he believed that the next at bat you had was going to be a base hit or you're going to come through. And uh, that's really hard in a sport like baseball. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I really admire about him. And, you know, one of the things that I really miss about him not being around anymore. Yeah, he was he was a fantastic guy. And after I published the episode with the Hall of Fame coaches, uh, everybody loved hearing from those guys again. And the response was everybody that had Ed Fan as a teacher said that was the guy that they got in the classroom, that they built that relationship, and they loved as their favorite teacher. And people that did not know Ed Fan all sent messages saying, I never knew how funny of a guy Ed Fan was. He, he was yeah. great. Um, how, about, how about Coach Rowling before we move on? You know, Coach Rowling, he's another guy who's really – He's really committed to education. You know, he, even though he's retired, his wife, Barb, is actually the principal over at St. Column Kills. And I just ran him in, into him the other day. And, you know, he was talking about helping Barb get everything set up for this school year at St. Column Kills. And, um, you know, and again, that speaks to, you know, that speaks to a guy who's, you know, so rooted in the fundamentals. You know, he wants, you know, he wants to build good students, you know, at all levels and, you know, I never had him in the classroom. I, I don't know that I know any stories of him being in the classroom, but I'd have to imagine that he was just as good as the other guys in the classroom and in, in developing, developing uh, relationships. And, you know, from what I've heard, you know, Jerry was probably one of the best athletes around, uh, but he uh, unfortunately really ripped up his knee really bad when he was, I believe he was in college. Uh, but there were a lot of people thought he could have really gone far because uh, he was a tremendous athlete, multi-sport athlete. He was a tremendous athlete, and he just uh, he got injured. But, you know, again, a, a tremendous coach, a guy with great fundamentals, um, you know, a great baseball mind. You know, it's still every time I run into him, I, you know, even if we're at the mall or something, you end up talking to him for 30 minutes or so about about baseball, and it's just it's it's fun to be around guys like that who have great baseball minds. Yeah, all all great guys. Now you said you've been with the Telegraph Herald for thirty two years. If you have to reflect on that time, who were some of the better teams, and who were some of the top high school players that you have seen come out of this area? Well, I'll start with the team, and you know the team that actually it was before I was at the TH. Uh, that those Hempstead teams of eighty three and eighty four, um, I was still they were. A couple classes ahead of me um but those guys were just phenomenal you know one through nine their their lineup was incredible they had great pitching uh they had everything put together um they were really special and hey, that's why you win back-to-back -back state championships and you know you look back at those guys and, and granted i was a couple years younger than them but they just seemed like they were grown men playing high school baseball 
and uh, and you know the more I've reflected and the more I've, I've been at the Telegraph Herald and you see teams that win state championships not just from here but all around you know you look at the, those teams and they just look a little different they look bigger you know they look like uh, you know like a team full of linebackers or a, a small college team and, and that's what that team really looked like to me uh, so that's kind of the uh, you know the the baseline for me you know you look at a team those teams and you know it's really hard to measure up against teams like that but I think uh, just this summer that Hempstead team uh, was probably probably one of the deepest offensive lineups I've seen in a long time Um, their pitching might have been a little bit behind but I think pitching was behind for teams across the state because you didn't have your your natural uh, pitcher catcher workouts all spring Uh, so I really really would have liked to seen what that team could have done with a full spring uh, workouts and a full season, you know, playing 40 games with the pitching depth that they had. I think they could have been really special. And I think that could have been a state championship team as well. I know coach Uh, Rapp would agree with you on that. He's texted me that many times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really, I honestly believe that. And, you know, it's, uh, they have some really nice arms and, you, you just wonder how much better they could have been if they would have, if it would have been a normal season. That and I think, you know, seeing the teams that were down in Des Moines like Ankeny and in Johnston and, and those teams, I think they certainly could compete with them. Yeah. Uh, but you know, going back the last few years, I think Western Dubuque has had some really nice teams here the last couple of years. Um, they're basically a three A school size wise. Uh, so for them to go down and compete in the state tournament at the 4A level, make it to the semifinals a couple years ago, uh, that's pretty remarkable. You know, they're basically, you know, they're basically half the size of Hempstead or senior and about a third of the side of schools like Waukee or, or West Des Moines Valley. So <clears throat> for them to make it to the state tournament back-to-back years, they had some pretty special teams. Uh, Wallard a couple years ago when they had a uh, uh, the Savory boys, uh, they were really special. And again, those, those Beckman teams, they were always really, really good. And I think, you know, they had, they had nice talent on those teams, but I think they were really resilient and they just had that positive gene that, uh, that coach Jenk always brought to them. And, you know, they'd seem like they always came through in the clutch situations because they just believe they can do it. And how about some of the better players that you've seen over the years? Well, we were talking a little bit off air. Um, you, you look at our list and, you know, just over the last 25 years, I bet you we've averaged probably a, a division one guy every year over that year. So, I mean, I, my list isn't nearly as comprehensive as I would like it to be, but um, we've had some tremendous, tremendous players come through here. You know, I think you look back at the, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just basically looking at guys that have been drafted from around here because uh, that's probably the best way to start. Or, um, But, I, you know, go back to the 90s. Wallard had Scott Savory. Uh, his boys are now at Wallard and have been really good at Wallard. Bobby Meyer and Tom Sullivan. Those were three guys from Wallard that all got drafted and uh, tremendous players. Pete Boniface from down at Bellevue. Um, was drafted by the Devil Rays at the time, and you know a big, big, strong right-handed pitcher. Uh, 
tremendous player. Uh, Nick Ungs from Dyersville Beckman made it to AAA with the the Brewers and the Marlins organizations. He was he was phenomenal. Uh, Hempstead had Andy Shope and Josh Hobble. They both got drafted. Those they were tremendous players while they were in high school. Uh, a guy that I played with uh, at Loris was Don Green. Uh, I think he was from down in uh, down near the Quad Cities. Big left hander got drafted by the Cardinals threw a really heavy ball and as a catcher my hand always hurt when I had to catch him because he just threw so hard and it was so cold in the, the spring that it was uh, devastating to catch him but a great guy too um, more recently you have to look at Colin Ray uh, from Cascade uh, tremendous player now with with the Cubs and you know a great story of perseverance from him to you know go from high school and you know, a couple of colleges along the way and really grinded his way through the minors to make it to the Padres, has Tommy John surgery and, you know, came back from that. And now he's with the Cubs. So that's, you know, pretty, pretty exciting. BJ Hermson from out in West Delaware is another one. Uh, he, I think he had a real bright future. I think he would have made it up to the twins if not for Tommy John surgery that pretty much ended, ended his career prematurely. He was another one. Um, but as far as like guys from Iowa that I saw when they were in high school, like Ryan Sweeney from down in Cedar Rapids was phenomenal. And Jeff Clement from Marshalltown was another one who was tremendous. You look at both those guys and um, you, you just look at them and you know that they were special. You knew that they were guys who could play at the next level and, uh, and they did. And, you know, I, the one name that I might, might surprise you with a little bit a little bit off the radar locally is Cordell Pemsel. Yeah. Um, uh, I saw him play as a sophomore uh, for Wallard. And it was one of those deals where he is like a Monday game and he had just spent the weekend playing AAU basketball. And I watched him. It was, I, I think it was the first time I ever saw him play. And I, it took maybe five or 10 seconds watching him to think this kid could probably play pro baseball right now. As a sophomore, uh, he was just so smooth and just uh, a tremendous athlete. And I, I thought uh, I thought he had a really bright future in, in baseball if he would have chose to go that way. But he had some injury problems at at, at Waller his last couple of years, and you know, obviously he's a basketball player and he's at Virginia Tech now. But you know, I thought he was a really smooth baseball player, and you know, as a as a baseball fan in me kind of uh, <clears throat> selfish to say that I wish I would have seen him play baseball instead of basketball, but, you know, <clears throat> good for him for uh, pursuing his bas- his passion of playing basketball. And uh, But, again, I, I really thought he was special. Yeah, I, I thought that, that as well. And when we were talking off air, you said that we could do another episode just based on the, on the greatest players, and you were just going to say the guys – who had been drafted, but that Cordell Pemsel, yeah, it was interesting because when he was, I believe he was an eighth grader, and he was playing um, my sophomore team, and he decided to come out late, and this was when I had the 2014 Hempstead Bunch as um, as eighth graders, and Jeremy Vossen had him down 0-2, threw him an 0-2 curveball on the outside corner, and Cordell literally just flicked his wrist to make contact and hit it to the warning track for for a triple. So I, I I always wondered 
what would have happened to him if he would have stayed with baseball and, and where he would be at. Jim, what- and I don't know that he did a lot of I don't know that he did a lot of their off season workouts because I think a lot of times he was really in the middle of of basketball season, and uh, so I'm sure he missed a lot of those those workouts. So it, it would have been interesting to see and it, you know kind of fun to. Uh, Fun to wonder what would have happened. Yeah, he he d- didn't do a lot of those because of AAU basketball. And I know he was always hit or miss going into the season if he was going to go out. And Cole Bogey always said he was he was an outstanding pitcher as well. Jim, what are some of your favorite stories to write? And then what are some of those difficult stories that are right that are the fun ones are you know I I just enjoy telling people's stories and giving them an outlet. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that there's one story that's, that's better than the other. It's just, it, it's always fun to just share people's stories. And uh, to, it, for me, it's kind of cool when you write a story that no one else knew about, and then you hear people in the background kind of talking about it. That's kind of a, kind of a fun thing, but it's, yeah, I enjoy sharing people's stories and, you know, even if it's a, even if it's a tough story, even if it's a story where people had to overcome odds and, you know, that maybe they're a little embarrassed to say, it's kind of nice to, to put that in a, a human touch on a tough story. Um, as far as the stories that are tough to write, you know, I, I just, you know, I go to the, uh, the story just this week about the University of Iowa cutting four sports and how that impacted uh, a couple of local swimmers and, um, it's just heartbreaking to tell a story of someone who had their dream crushed. You know, it's one thing to have, you know, it, it happens with, with people being injured or having career ending injuries or, or things like that. But in this case to have, you know, you dream about swimming for Iowa and to have that torn away from you kind of unannounced or just kind of, on the spur of a moment, it, it's really tough. And, you know, you might, you might say, well, you know, I don't care about swimming or, um, but I think those people are as, as passionate about swimming as we are as, about baseball. So I try to try to relate to those people and how passionate they are about their sports, because I know that I'm very passionate about baseball and there are people out there who aren't passionate about baseball. Now, Jim, I I want you to think uh, big picture here. I want us to look into a crystal ball, and let's envision the next five years. What do you think will be some of the biggest baseball stories in the Dubuque area in the next five years? Well, hopefully, hopefully we're out of this coronavirus pandemic. If, um, if we're not in five years. I, yeah. I, I don't even want to think about it. Well, I think, I think we're, you know, I think hopefully the pandemic is over. I just hope that uh, the long lasting ramifications, I hope we're, that's what I mean. I, I think we're, I hope we're past the, the ramifications of this. And I hope that there aren't long lasting implications, uh, you know, health wise. I, I hope that we're out of this within, you know, a few months or a year or so, but there will be, I think there will be long lasting implications. Um, but I think like best case scenario, I think in five years, we could have two more local players who are right on the cusp of playing major league baseball. 
Uh, we talked about Ian Mahler earlier. Looks like he might be a first-round draft pick next year. And Calvin Harris, I think he's got a chance to be a high-end draft pick uh, after three years down at Ole Miss. You know, I think those are two guys who are, you know, on the national radar. They're both elite, elite players, both elite catchers. And uh, I think that uh, there's a real good chance that both of those guys, you know, if they're not quite at the big league level, they could be knocking on the door within five years. We are all looking forward to that, to see what happens with with those two. And I've even heard some um, rumblings about possibly Andrew Henry being a possible draft pick in, yeah, in a couple a, of years as well. Yeah, he's a, he's another one. You know, he's a guy who's got a tremendous work ethic. Um, he's a guy, you know, and, and all these guys, they, they still have a lot of work ahead of them. Uh, to, to reach that point, but I would not be surprised to see him uh, enter that discussion too. I, I just look at the improvement that he made from sophomore year to junior year, junior year to senior, like in terms of like his footwork and um, he's, he hits the ball. He barrels up balls probably as good as anyone I've seen in a long time. So he's a, he's a guy definitely who has a, a very bright future ahead of him as well. Jim Leitner from the Telegraph Herald, thanks for joining us and stick around for the seventh inning stretch segment. Next is our seventh inning stretch segment of the podcast, which is audience driven questions. Sit back and enjoy. Jim, we did have some audience questions for our seventh inning stretch segment. The first one comes from Josh Coyle, and he asks, has the Telegraph Herald ever censored anything that you want it to write or publish? If so, what was the story or the content? Nope, that's, uh, I can honestly say that's never happened. And I think uh, the big thing is they want us to be responsible you know, and do the right things. And uh, if we're going to write a story, you want to make sure that you're, you can back your story, that you're, it's well researched. Um, If it's controversial, make sure that you're, you stand behind what you write. And uh, if you do those things, if you follow like your really good journalistic standards, then you shouldn't really have a problem. You know, I think there's sometimes when, if you let emotions get involved or you try to get too emotionally tied up into something, that's never a good thing. So you just want to make sure that you're doing right by the story. And if you do that, then you you should be good. But as far as being censored, uh, that's, that's never happened. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's happened in the news department either that I know of. So, I mean, it's just, again, if you do a story, make sure you do it right and do it well and, and follow the right standards and you're, you're all right. That's that's great to hear, and I'm going to take your advice there with the podcast as well. Now, we had a question come in from Marv Mullert, and he is the voice of the East Dubuque Warriors and the Wallert Catholic Golden Eagles. And he says, when he's not in the booth, he loves hearing you call a game. He says, you are more vocal and passionate for the home team. How do you juggle when it's an inner city game? And how do you not play a favorite? Well, I think 
he's re- probably referring to I do like some uh, color analysis analysis for the the fighting scenes. Um, so I do that during the winter time. That's the, mostly the time that I'm on the radio or doing play by play or, or color. Um, and that's a matter of that. I know the audience, you know, that's, uh, I'm doing it for a Dubuque audience. So I try to, you know, I, I think the, the Dubuque audience doesn't really care about what happens in Waterloo or Cedar Rapids. They, they really want to hear the Dubuque angle. Uh, they want to hear the, the Dubuque perspective a lot more. So that's where that comes out. Um, in terms of, you know, an inner city game, uh, this might be something that's might be a little bit hard for, for people to grasp. But if you go to a baseball game, you have a team that you're rooting for. You know, it, you know 99% of the people who go to a baseball game if they go to a Hempstead versus Waller game, they're going to cheer for Hempstead or they're going to cheer for Waller. Uh, but in our case, we, when we go to games, you know, guys on my staff, we're really cheering for a good storyline. You know, we're, we're cheering for a, a really good game. We're, we're cheering for um, something that's, you know, something that's good to write about. And, you know, we really, we really honestly do not, pick favorites when it comes to the local teams. And, you know, I learned that a long time ago, you know, I, you know, I meet guys like Ed Fayan or uh, um, you meet like, like Mike Fleming when he was coaching at senior, those guys were really great guys. And, you know, even though I was a guy who was from Hempstead, you know, I met, met these guys from Wallard and senior who are great guys. And, you know, it's hard to just say, you know, present the Hempstead perspective when you know these guys are great guys and they they're just as passionate about their schools too so uh, again I think it's most people probably wouldn't understand you know because they're a fan of a certain team and they go to that game and they root for that certain team but for us like I said we're more interested in a good story we're not interested in we don't go there and root for one team to win over the other we just want uh, a good game and a good story and and that's the way it works. And like I said, I don't know if a lot of people quite grasp that or understand that, but that's really the way we are. And it, I, I can speak to all the guys on my staff. We're actually the same way. We're we're sports fans rather than just uh, fans of individual teams. That's that's great to hear. And you guys and your staff do such a great job of, of covering all the teams. And I, I was in the same boat this year as well with the podcast. I mean, Coaching at Wallert, Hempstead, and Western Dubuque, I always want those three teams to do well. But when Senior got off on that hot start and they had their bats rolling, that was a great story to cover. And seeing what's going on with Cal Harris and Ian Mahler, you want those kids to do well as well. And also the schools outside of, of the Dubuque area in Beckman and Cascade. Now, Brian Schuler, and you mentioned hockey before, so this is a great lead-in question. Brian Schuler says he has read a lot of your work in the USA Hockey publication. What is more fun to cover, hockey or baseball? Do you have any hockey stories that might barely fit for print? And I'm wondering if that means if if they're a little bit on the um, the PG-13 or R-rated side. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a, it's really neat that, 
hockey's in the winter and, and baseball's in the summer. So they, they complement each other really well. Um, I love both of them equally. You know, there are times in the summer where I wish it was hockey season. And there are times in the winter where I wish it was baseball season. Uh, they're both equally fun and they're, they're both unique sports. They're different sports. So, uh, I would say I, I flip a coin as to far as far as which one I enjoy better. Uh, but they're both a lot of fun, a lot of great people involved with it. And, um, so it's, it's fun covering both of them. As, as far as stories, I think, you know, you, interesting stories. I think you have to go back a long ways because now with hockey is like every other sport. Um, the athletes are so fine tuned right now and they're so concerned about performance and they understand that uh, some of the extracurricular uh, activities aren't necessarily good for their performance athletically. Uh, so I think they're a lot better that maybe, maybe that means they're a little more boring right now than they were back in the day. Um, but uh, I, when I was uh, earlier in my career, I made a couple bus bus trips with the fighting saints uh, to Thunder Bay, Ontario. And one of the things that I was told was that uh, what happens on the bus stays on the bus. And that's probably a, uh, Probably a good thing. One story that I will say is uh, I made a trip up to Thunder Bay, Ontario with the team in the mid-1990s. And the Fighting Saints had a coach on the team who was from Latvia. And he didn't have all his paperwork. So we kind of had to uh, smuggle him across the border into Canada <laughs> and smuggle him back. So it was kind of it was kind of a interesting thing. And we were kind of sweating when we... Uh, went through uh, the border at that time, but you know, at that time it wasn't nearly as as strict as it was since nine eleven. But it was kind of a, an interesting story, and that might be the the, the best PG uh, story that I can tell in in this uh, this area. But there, there, like I said, I think what happens on the bus stays on the bus, and uh, it's not interesting, but it's kind of the code that you have to live by. That's that's a great motto to have. And here's a question. It almost serves as a follow-up question when we were talking about your upbringing. But Jim Conradi says, when you were 10 years old, you and him were a bunch of regulars playing baseball every single summer of every single day at Marshall School, not counting yourself. Who was the best player that played in those Sandlot games and did they go on to play high school, college, and or professional baseball? No, I, I don't know that any of them really went on to much, much greater levels. I, I think um, Mark Laird was one who was, he was a couple years older than us. And Gary Loggison was another one. They were both a couple years older than us. So they, they're a little bit physically, a little bit bigger and better than us. And, um, but yeah, they, uh, they were the ones that, really pretty much dominated, but I don't know that too many went on to high school. Kevin Romberg's younger brother, Fred was my, my grade and he played at those games I'm trying to remember the, the higher brothers. They played um, a lot of, you know, a lot of fun. And it, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, which I'm, I'm sure you have, oh, yeah. it, it was a lot like that. You know, it was a lot of fun and it was, uh, you know, really, it was not really organized. It was just go up and, and, and hit the ball and, and catch the ball and throw the ball. And it was a lot of fun. And 
uh, like Jim. Jim, I remember Jim. We played all the time, and Wayne Briggs is another guy. He's a you know a business magnet here in town now, but he was another one who was a really really talented player from that group. And it was just you know summers went by so fast uh, back then playing sandlot baseball all the time. And he's right, we played every day, and you know it was a if someone went on vacation or someone was gone, it was just like a huge void in your day or if it rained, there was a huge void in your day because you couldn't play, but a lot of great memories on that Marshall school playground. And, um, you know, I think it's, it really set the foundation for me playing baseball too. go out there and just have fun and enjoy the game. And, you know, that's what we did. Jim, it's been great talking to you again. Thank you for being a guest on the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can check out Jim's work in the Telegraph Herald, also on Twitter at the TH Sports Feed. Jim, talking to you, there are so many things that we can connect on. You talked about the um, city of Dubuque baseball. I, I forget what you called it at the beginning of the program, but it used to be up at Vets. And I know Coach Fleming was one of those. We would go up there in the morning to vets and we would practice baseball. And then we'd go to our independent league games at night where you would play at the Holy Ghost Fields. And then, you know, in between those, you would play pick up sand, uh, sandlot baseball with your friends. Now, before we hit into that podcast ending double play, last question for you. Mm-hmm. What makes Dubuque a baseball town? Well, I think it's a, I think it's really a generational thing. You have a lot of people who are a lot of dads who pass the game along to their, to their sons and, you know, really have that passion for the game. And, you know, I think it's, it's really remarkable because around here, we really don't have a lot of great facilities. You know, if you go down to, to Bettendorf or you go down to the, the Cedar Rapids area, they're just, immaculate facilities all over the place and and we don't have that here you know we've as long as i've been around you know following baseball in dubuque we've never had that you know i think right now the university of dubuque has an outstanding beautiful field up there i don't know if you've seen that or not but it's it's just a phenomenal facility but but other than that our facilities have not really been that great especially at the youth level and but i think it's just a lot of parents really have a passion for the game and they pass that along to their kids. And, you know, it's just, uh, it just goes generation to generation. And, and now I think we're really benefiting from the, uh, the academies, the local academies. I think we have three or four of them here where you have guys who played pro baseball and they're, they're teaching the game, they're teaching the fundamentals and they're teaching the right way to play the game. And that's uh, really fostering a, a lot of great talent in our area right now and, and hopefully that uh, continues our tradition of great baseball many many years into the road down the road jim anything you want to promote or plug before we get you out of here no i think you know what uh, what i really appreciate about about baseball is you know it's a game that uh, I've met a lot of wonderful, wonderful people uh, through baseball. And um, when I go cover a game, it gives me an opportunity to, to just kind of sit and talk to people. And what I really appreciate is I've had a lot of opportunities to sit and talk with really successful people. You know, I look at, uh, you know, like 
just most recently uh, went to a baseball game out at Farley. So you're talking about guys like Paul Sherman, who's the manager at Farley, Scott Harris, who's longtime Farley, Farley uh, baseball player, and Calvin Harris's dad. And those two guys are extremely successful business people. And, you know, I, I, I really get a kick out of being around successful people, um, successful businessmen. And I, I try to, the conversations that I have with them, I try to try to figure out why they're such successful business people and then maybe apply that to what I do as a manager of people at the Telegraph Herald. Um, and look at Paul Sherman, you know, he's a guy who's just an absolute stickler for the fundamentals. You know, he wants to play the game the right way. You know, he's an old school guy, but he, he's really a stickler on the fundamentals. And that's the way Farley baseball plays. You know, if you look at Scott Harris, he's a guy who is, uh, uh, I don't know that you'll find too many people who have better customer service in their business. And, you know, you wonder, geez, why is Scott Harris a successful businessman? It's because he's got tremendous, he's another guy who's got a, a great attention to detail and a great attention to fundamentals and, and playing the game the right way. And that translates into being, you know, a guy who has great customer service. And uh, in his business, he treats every one of his customers like they're a big leaguer or like they're a celebrity. And, you know, those are things that I try to, you know, I try to, when I see, uh, successful people and I meet successful business people. I try to at least kind of learn something about them and, and their personalities that explains why they're successful. And again, I try to implement that in what I do as a person. So it's, you know, it's goes a little deeper than just going to watch a baseball game and, and reporting on a baseball game. I try to learn a little bit myself and, you know, and try to try to grow as a person. And I think that's why I think I've grown a lot as a person since I've gotten out of high school because I've been around a lot of successful people and, and understand why they're successful. You know, Coach Jenk is another one. You know, I think I learned a lot about, about a, a lot about life and a lot about uh, interpersonal communications by working with him and a lot of great coaches. You know, I, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there's been a lot of great coaches, a lot of great baseball players, a lot of great athletes that you, you try to figure out why they're successful and then try to implement a little bit of that into your own life. Jim, well spoken and, and well said. And thank you again for being a guest. Make sure you check out Jim Leitner, Telegraph Herald, and at the TH Sports Feed. 643, we're out of here. Post game show is brought to you by. Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Thank you for listening to the Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram by searching Dubuque Area Baseball Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Coach Manaman. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, find us on Spotify, and subscribe.